Our scripture reading this morning comes from Luke chapter 23, verses 32 through 43, and can be found in your pew Bible on page 748. Two other men, both criminals, were also led out to him to be executed. When they came to the place called the Skull, there they crucified him, along with the criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. The people stood watching, and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, He saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Christ of God, the Chosen One. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was a written notice above him which read, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence. We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus answered him, I tell you the truth. Today you will be with me in paradise. This is the word of the Lord. Let me begin with a narrative based on the autobiography of Dorothy Day. It was 1917 on a piercing winter night in Greenwich Village. Huddled in the back room of a bar known as the Hell Hole was a bohemian gathering of artists, intellectuals, and misfits. Among them were the country's premier playwright, Eugene O'Neill, and the left-wing journalist, Dorothy Day. They were close friends, confidants, and drinking buddies. Maybe it was the booze, maybe because of the hour being way past closing time, but O'Neill seemed unusually melancholy. He started quoting from memory the Francis Thompson poem entitled The Hound of Heaven, which describes our common flight from the God who so lovingly pursues us. I fled him down the nights and down the days. I fled him down the arches of the years. I fled him down the labyrinthine ways of my own mind, and in the mist of tears, I hid from him. Dorothy Day had never heard O'Neill speak of this poem before, and it sobered her, sobered everyone. Cigarette smoke curled upward and hung in the air like wispy apparitions. Everyone was hushed and still. Shortly after leaving the hellhole, Day and O'Neill parted company not to see each other for more than a decade. He wrote of a God who failed to make good on his promises of sin and shame and the terror of death, primarily the terror of death. He won four Pulitzers and the Nobel Prize for Literature, but happiness always eluded him. Dorothy married twice, conceived twice, aborted twice, and finally bore a daughter by a man she never married. Like Eugene O'Neill, Dorothy Day could not find her way personally, emotionally, and especially spiritually. Could there be hope for them? Would they let themselves ever be found by the hound of heaven? Well, the story of the thief on the cross reminds us that there is still hope. You can still turn your life around, that there is life beyond this life, that it's not too late. And people are very much looking for that. They want it so badly to be true that there is a heaven. 
Not long ago, USA Today surveyed the top 1%. It was a sample of the top 1% richest people in America. And they asked, what would you pay the most money for? The wealthiest 1% of people in America surveyed said that their number one desire was not beauty or intellect or power or even love. You know what it was? A place in heaven. I found this part interesting. On average, they said that they would pay $640,000 for that. I don't know where they got that. $640,000. Well, that's kind of funny, but even more, the irony is, here's this story that was just read that assures us that heaven is real, and not just that. The great news is it's absolutely free. You don't have to pay $600,000 for it. It's free for the rich and the poor and everyone else in between. And if this historical account really is true and it is accepted and received and confessed, you can walk away no longer in fear of death. And because of that, you can really live life to the fullest. You know, we're not just saved from, we are saved to this life that begins even now. Wasn't even too late for this thief on the cross. Now, Matthew lets us know that he was a robber. He was probably more than that. He had committed a serious crime. In Exodus 22, it says that you could not incarcerate a nonviolent criminal. That was just basic Jewish thought. You did not do that. But here was a guy getting crucified by the Romans. No doubt he was at the least a repeat offender. Most likely he committed murder as he was uh, participating in armed robbery. He was a bad fella, no doubt. He even confesses on the cross that his punishment fits the crime, so he probably did kill someone. Notice the initial response, though, of both of the thieves. If you go to Matthew 27, verse 44, it says, in the same way the robbers who were crucified with him also heaped insults on him. Originally, at first, both of the criminals on either side of Jesus taunted him, insulted him, poured out their bitterness against him him. But something happened that changed this one's mind. Something happened between 9 a.m. when Jesus was nailed to the cross and noon when he speaks to him. Something happened within those three hours. What motivated him to change his attitude about Jesus? I think the only reason we can say is he watched how Jesus responded as he hung there suffering and physical pain having the insults hurled his way as he was undergoing such horrible, horrible strain and stress. The way that he responded convinced this man that this was no ordinary person beside him. He was convinced that he was the real thing. You know, you can tell a lot about a person while they are dying, and he watched Jesus as he more than one time, we've talked about this before, he said, Father, forgive them more than once. Probably said it even on the cross more than once. And he did not insult the people who were insulting him. He did not retaliate. He did not taunt. He did not curse. And this man just watched Jesus on the cross. And this witness that he had somehow spoke to him and made him realize that he was for real. They hurled insults at Jesus and yet he didn't retaliate. You know, Jesus' death And the way he died was so distinctive that this dying thief realized that his claims were true. So what does this thief do? Let me read it one more time. But the other criminal rebuked him. This is the man who comes to know Christ. The other criminal rebuked the other criminal who had been insulting Jesus. Do you not fear God 
Since you are under the same sentence, we are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Two important things that the man does. First of all, he takes a stand. Think about it. He dared to distance himself from everyone else who was there who were insulting Jesus, taunting him, rejecting him. But he vocally says, I believe he is whom he says he is. I believe that he is the king. He differentiates himself from the Roman officials who were there, from the mob that's there, from the Sanhedrin that's there, even the criminal on the other side. He differentiates himself and says, no matter what others say, I say that he is whom he claims to be. He actually asks the fellow, do you not fear God? I mean, in the long run, when we confess our faith in Jesus, is that not what we're saying in so many ways to others who do not know him personally? Do you not fear God? So he takes a stand and he also repents. Two key words. He says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. First of all, he says Jesus. This is the only time, did you know this? This is the only time in the Gospels where someone calls Jesus by his first name. His personal name, Yeshua, Jesus. He addresses him that personally, that intimately. It's amazing. And he's doing that just before he is to die in one of these most intimate of moments, transformative of moments. And that's amazing that he can speak to Jesus so personally. It's amazing that you and I can do that. You know, to be given this greatest of gifts... Let me invoke our theme this year. It's three words. Do you remember? It's all, but Can you all help me? It's all his. It's all his. <laughs> and I know we talk about it's all his. Oh, gosh, Tim, I'm going to go blank here. It's all his story. It's all his time. It's all his assets, and it's all his resources. Everybody needs a co-pastor. Can I tell you that? Uh, but even more than all those things put all together, The main thing that is all his is eternity. Think about it. He did not have to offer anyone else eternity. He didn't really have to offer anyone else the gift of life itself. Fleshly, earthly life. But not only that, it's all his and yet he shares with us, offers to us on a regular basis eternal life. Always making that first move. It's all his. There was no reason for him really to offer the eternal life to us. But he did, that we might join him in eternity. He didn't have to do it, but he did. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. That word kingdom is the other main word there. It's interesting to me that nobody else at Golgotha there where Jesus is being crucified refer to Jesus as a king except in mockery. But this guy says, no, he is the true king. In some way, he saw more clearly than everybody else present, more than everybody else present, that he was whom he said he was, and that he was the leader of a spiritual kingdom. Now think about it. How much theology did this guy know? I mean, really, hardly anything at all, but he had enough. With the light that he had, he had better knowledge of Jesus and who he was and what he was about, better than all the theologians through the ages. He really did. He had all that he needed to receive and go to paradise. And that's why it should be so easy for us just to say, as Harold Cannon reminds us a lot, as we're doing mission work or ministering to someone, do you know why I'm doing this? And you can keep it very simple. You can keep it extremely simple. And it can be transforming, utterly transforming. This guy believed it was true. Do you? 
Do you believe that his claims are true? Because if you really embrace this, you realize that death is not final. It does not have the final say, that we have nothing to fear. I remember reading a few years ago, Billy Graham was interviewed about his six-decade-long ministry to presidents of the United States. And the reporter asked him, which president did you spend the most time with? It was somebody I didn't expect. Anybody want to even take a guess at it? Anybody want to guess? Who? Nixon. Nixon needed it. Uh, No, it wasn't Nixon. That would have been my guess. Truman? No. Truman didn't like him at first. Truman, then Truman came to love him because he was a Baptist. Uh, It was LBJ, Lyndon Baines Johnson, President Johnson. And even the reporter was kind of struck by that. And he said, well, why was it Johnson that you spent the most time with? And very quickly, Billy Graham looked at him and said, because Johnson was afraid of death. And Johnson just needed to be around this one who embodied eternal life and could remind him that, yes, all of this is true. Well, are you afraid of death? Or are you truly aware that death has been defeated, that it's true? You know, Jesus says in here, truly I say to you, you will be with me in paradise. He didn't have to say truly. Why did he say that? I think it's because it sounds too good to be true. But he says, truly, you will be with me. I want to assure you, you will be with me in paradise today, not tomorrow, not next month, not next year. Today, you, whatever the gentleman's name was, will be with me in paradise. It's not just a place where you go see Jesus, you're with him. But you need to take action and make a call. One biblical commentator from the old days put this very well, I think, commenting on this passage about the thief on the cross who gives, in a sense, a deathbed conversion. It says, he says, there is one deathbed conversion in the pages of Scripture with the thief. There is one deathbed conversion in the pages of Scripture so that none may despair, but there is only one so that none may presume. Only one so that none may presume. You know, the Bible itself says, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. No reason for you, and I'm going to use the old school word that you hear in revivals, no need to tarry. (laughs) No need to put it off. If you've never made a confession of faith in Jesus, this is your moment here and now. We really don't know what each of our time clocks are. We all know that we're going to pass from this world. Uh, It might not be for you another 50 years. It could be tonight in your sleep. You just do not know. And yet, it's time then to give your life to him. And you will find your place with Christ. And it is indeed true. I've always loved, and I know there are those wonderful passages in Romans about salvation. I've always liked John 6, 37, where Jesus promises, whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. In another way, he says what? Lo, I am with you always. I am reading right now uh, my favorite C.S. Lewis book, and I'm embarrassed to say that I've never read it before, but I meet every week in a cadre with some of my pre-men scholars, students, and we're reading The Great Divorce. Has anybody read that about heaven and hell? It's, I think it's his most phenomenal book. Michael, what's your favorite? Say The Great Divorce, because mere Christianity's good. I like The Great Divorce, okay? All right. No raise next year. Okay. Now, I love The Great Divorce, and I'd never read it before, but it's a phenomenal, imaginative book, and I I highly recommend it to you. It's kind of crazy, imaginative writing, but it's really about heaven and hell and things like that. It's just fascinating, but I think toward uh, the end of chapter 9, which is just incredible, 
is one of the best-known quotes of C.S. Lewis, where he says, There are only two kinds of people in the end, those who say to God, Thy will be done, and those to whom God says in the end, Thy will be done. Can I say that again? There are only two kinds of people in the end, those who say to God, Thy will be done, and those to whom God says in the end, Thy will be done. In other words, you turn to God and say, Your will be done in my life, O God, then God says that to you. But if you turn from Him and have never made that confessional statement to Him and give your life over to Him in true fellowship of Him, He's going to say to you, Well, your will be done then. I've tried. I've made the initial move countless times, every day, every moment, every second, and you've never done anything with it, so your will be done. You make the choice that determines your destiny, so will it be spiritual death, or will it be this free gift that's all his of paradise? Well, what about Eugene O'Neill and Dorothy Day? What choice did these sophisticated intellectual bohemians make as the loving God, the hound of heaven, pursued them. Let me close that narrative. In December 1927, Dorothy Day surrendered to the relentless pursuit of heaven's hound, and she became a Christ follower. She lived a life of poverty with no income and no security, caring for the homeless on the streets not far from the hellhole. She wrote books and treatises about the grace of a merciful God. Dorothy Day never stopped praying for her friend, Eugene O'Neill, who had opened her eyes with the words of that poem that he had recited. As she recounted in her autobiography, it is one of those poems that awakens the soul, recalls to it the fact that God is our ultimate destiny. We do not know if Eugene O'Neill's soul was ever so awakened. We do do know that while he lay on his deathbed in Boston in 1953, Dorothy Day was with him. She summoned a minister to his side. And keeping vigil, she prayed. She prayed that he would at last unclench his fist and grasp the hand that had been reaching out to him for so many years, hoping that he might hear those final words that he recited in a bar room on that blustery winter night. Rise, clasp my hand, and come. Like Dorothy, like the thief on the cross, have you clasped his hand? In just a moment, Ethan's going to sing a song, and it's a fascinating song, and it's from the perspective of the thief on the cross. And I love the chorus, which is this. This is how love wins every single time, climbing high upon a tree where someone else should die, you and me. This is how love heals the deepest part of you, letting himself bleed into the middle of your wounds. This is what love is, standing at the door. You don't have to be what you've been before. Oh God, we are all sinful criminals, sinful thieves. And yet freely you offer us that grace, freely, lovingly, and that's how love wins. We, we ask that if anyone has not truly experienced that love or, or gotten to the point of courageously confessing whom you are, distinguishing himself or herself from the rest of the world. We ask that they might have the courage to do so today. Lord, be with us at this point of commitment, of decision. 
And if anyone feels led, O oh God, to make some type of commitment this day, whether it be to move church membership or to be baptized or to confess faith in you, we pray that they would feel moved to do so right now, that they would come forward and, and be greeted and that there might be celebration. But, Lord, there is already celebration. Thank you for this incredible gift of love that indeed is victorious in the end. We pray these things in your name. Amen.